Act Two of Justice by John Goldsworthy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Act Two A Court of Justice on a foggy October afternoon, crowded with barristers, solicitors, reporters, ushers, and jurymen, sitting in the large solid dock his folder, with a warder on either side of him, placed there for his safe custody, but seemingly indifferent to and unconscious of his presence. Folder is sitting exactly opposite to the judge, who, raised above the clamour of the court, also seems unconscious of and indifferent to everything. Harold Cleaver, the counsel for the Crown, is a dried, yellowish man of more than middle age, in a wig worn almost to the colour of his face. Hector Froome, the counsel for the defence, is a young, tall man, clean-shaved, in a very white wig. Among the spectators, having already given their evidence, are James and Walter Howe, and Cowley the cashier. Wister, the detective, is just leaving the witness-box. That is the case for the crown, my lord. Gathering his robes together, he sits down. Froome, rising and bowing to the judge. If it please your lordship and gentlemen of the jury, I am not going to dispute the fact that the prisoner altered this cheque, but I am going to put before you evidence as to the condition of his mind, and to submit that you would not be justified in finding that he was responsible for his actions at the time. I am going to show you, in fact, that he did this in a moment of aberration, amounting to temporary insanity, caused by the violent distress under which he was labouring. Gentlemen, the prisoner is only twenty-three years old. I shall call before you a woman from whom you will learn the events that led up to this act. You will hear from her own lips the tragic circumstances of her life, the still more tragic infatuation with which she has inspired the prisoner. This woman, gentlemen, has been leading a miserable existence with a husband who habitually ill-uses her, from whom she actually goes in terror of her life. I am not, of course, saying that it's either right or desirable for a young man to fall in love with a married woman— or that it's his business to rescue her from an ogre-like husband. I'm not saying anything of the sort. But we all know the power of the passion of love. And I would ask you to remember, gentlemen, in listening to her evidence, that married to her drunken and violent husband, she has no power to get rid of him. For as you know, another offence besides violence is necessary to enable a woman to obtain a divorce— and of this offence it does not appear that her husband is guilty. Is this relevant, Mr. Froome? My lord, I submit extremely. I shall be able to show your lordship that directly. Very well. In these circumstances, what alternatives were left to her? She could either go on living with this drunkard, in terror of her life, or she could apply to the court for a separation order. Well, gentlemen, my experience of such cases assures me that this would have given her very insufficient protection from the violence of such a man. 
and even if effectual would very likely have reduced her either to the workhouse or to the streets for it's not easy as she is now finding for an unskilled woman without means of livelihood to support herself and her children without resorting either to the poor law or to speak quite plainly to the sale of her body you are ranging rather far mr froome i shall fire point-blank in a minute my lord let us hope so now gentlemen mark and this is what i have been leading up to this woman will tell you and the prisoner will confirm her that confronted with such alternatives she set her whole hopes on himself knowing the feeling with which she had inspired him she saw a way out of her misery by going with him to a new country where they would both be unknown and might pass as husband and wife this was a desperate and as my friend mr cleaver will no doubt call it an immoral resolution but as a fact the minds of both of them were constantly turned towards it one wrong is no excuse for another and those who are never likely to be faced by such a situation possibly have the right to hold up their hands as to that i prefer to say nothing but whatever view you take gentlemen of this part of the prisoner's story whatever opinion you form of the right of these two young people under such circumstances to take the law into their own hands the fact remains that this young woman in her distress and this young man little more than a boy who was so devotedly attached to her did conceive this if you like reprehensible design of going away together now for that of course they required money and they had none as to the actual events of the morning of july seventh on which this cheque was altered the events on which i rely to prove the defendant's irresponsibility i shall allow these events to speak for themselves through the lips of my witness robert coaxon he turns looks round takes up a sheet of paper and waits coaxon is summoned into court and goes into the witness-box holding his hat before him the oath is administered to him. What is your name? Robert Coxon. Are you managing clerk to the firm of solicitors who employ the prisoner? Yes. How long had the prisoner been in their employ? Two years. No, I'm wrong there. All but seventeen days. Had you him under your eye all that time? Except Sundays and holidays. Quite so let us hear please what you have to say about his general character during those two years coaxon confidentially to the jury and as if a little surprised at being asked he was a nice pleasant-spoken young man i'd no fault to find with him quite the contrary it was a great surprise to me when he did a thing like that did he ever give you reason to suspect his honesty no to have dishonesty in our office that'd never do i'm sure the jury fully appreciates that mr coaxon every man of business knows that honesty's the sine qua non do you give him a good character all round or do you not coaxon turning to the judge certainly we were all very jolly and pleasant together until this happened quite upset me now coming to the morning of the seventh of july the morning on which the cheque was altered 
What have you to say about his demeanour that morning? Clegson, to the jury. If you ask me, I don't think he was quite compass when he did it. The judge, sharply. Are you suggesting that he was insane? Not compass. A little more precision, please. Froome, smoothly. Just tell us, Mr. Coxon. Coxon, somewhat outraged. Well, in my opinion, such as it is. Looking at the judge. He was jumpy at the time. The jury will understand my meaning. Will you tell us how you came to that conclusion? Yes, I will. I have my lunch in from the restaurant. A chop and a potato. Saves time. That day it happened to come, just as Mr. Walter Howe handed me the cheque. Well, I like it odd. So I went into the clerk's office, and I handed the cheque to Davis, the other clerk, and told him to get changed. I noticed young Folder walking up and down. I said to him, This is not the zoological gardens, Folder. Do you remember what he answered? Yes. I wish to God it were. Struck me as funny. Did you notice anything else peculiar? I did. What was that? His collar was unbuttoned. Now, I like a young man to be neat. I said to him, Your collar's unbuttoned. And what did he answer? Stared at me. It wasn't nice. Stared at you? Isn't that a very common practice? Yes, but it was the look in his eyes. I can't explain my meaning. It was funny. Had you ever seen such a look in his eyes before? No. If I had, I should have spoken to the partners. We can't have anything eccentric in our profession. Did you speak to them on that occasion? Coaxon, confidentially. Well, I didn't like to trouble them about prima facie evidence. But it made a very distinct impression on your mind. Yes. The Clark Davis could have told you the same. Quite so. It's very unfortunate that we've not got him here. Now, can you tell me of the morning on which the discovery of the forgery was made? That would be the 18th. Did anything happen that morning? Coaxon, with his hand to his ear. I'm a little deaf. Was there anything in the course of that morning, I mean before the discovery, that caught your attention? Yes. A woman. How is this relevant, Mr. Froome? I am trying to establish the state of mind in which the prisoner committed this act, my lord. I quite appreciate that, but this was long after the act. Yes, my lord, but it contributes to my contention. Well... You say a woman. Do you mean that she came to the office? Yes. What for? Asked to see young Folder. He was out at the moment. Did you see her? I did. Did she come alone? Coaxon, confidentially. Well, there you put me in a difficulty. I mustn't tell you what the office boy told me. Quite so, Mr. Coaxon, quite so. Coaxon, breaking in with an air of, You are young, leave it to me. But I think we can get round it. 
in answer to a question put to her by a third party the woman said to me they're mine sir what are what were her children they were outside how do you know your lordship mustn't ask me that or i shall have to tell you what i was told and that never do the judge smiling the office boy made a statement exactly what i want to ask you mr coaxon is this in the course of her appeal to see folder did the woman say anything that you specially remember coaxon looking at him as if to encourage him to complete the sentence a little more sir or did she not she did i shouldn't like you to have led me to the answer froome with an irritated smile will you tell the jury what it was it's a matter of life and death do you mean the woman said that coaxon nodding it's not the sort of thing you like to have said to you froome a little impatiently did folder come in while she was there coaxon nods and she saw him and went away ah there i can't follow you i didn't see her go well is she there now coaxon with an indulgent smile no thank you mr coaxon he sits down cleaver rising you say on the morning of the forgery the prisoner was jumpy well now sir what precisely do you mean by that word coaxon indulgently i want you to understand have you ever seen a dog that's lost its master he was kind of everywhere at once with his eyes thank you i was coming to his eyes you called them funny what are we to understand by that strange or what yes funny cleaver sharply yes sir but what may be funny to you may not be funny to me or to the jury did they look frightened or shy or fierce or what you make it very hard for me i give you the word and you want me to give you another cleaver rapping his desk does funny mean mad not mad fun very well now you say he had his collar unbuttoned was it a hot day yes i think it was and did he button it when you called his attention to it yes i think he did would you say that denoted insanity he sits down coaxon who has opened his mouth to reply is left gaping froome rising hastily have you ever caught him in that dishevelled state before no he was always clean and quiet that will do thank you coaxon turns blandly to the judge as though to rebuke counsel for not remembering that the judge might wish to have a chance arriving at the conclusion that he is to be asked nothing further he turns and descends from the box and sits down next to james and walter ruth honeywill ruth comes into court and takes her stand stoically in the witness-box she is sworn what is your name please ruth honeywell how old are you twenty-six you are a married woman living with your husband a little louder 
No, sir, not since July. Have you any children? Yes, sir, two. Are they living with you? Yes, sir. You know the prisoner? Ruth, looking at him. Yes. What was the nature of your relations with him? We were friends. Friends? Ruth, simply. Lovers, sir. The judge, sharply. In what sense do you use that word? We love each other. Yes, but... Ruth, shaking her head. No, your lordship, not yet. Not yet. Hmm. He looks from Ruth to Falder. Well? What is your husband? Traveller. And what was the nature of your married life? Ruth, shaking her head. It don't bear talking about. Did he ill-treat you, or what? Ever since my first was born. In what way? I'd rather not say all sorts of ways. I am afraid I must stop this, you know. Ruth, pointing to Fulda. He offered to take me out of it, sir. We were going to South America. Froome, hastily. Yes, quite. And what prevented you? I was outside his office when he was taken away. It nearly broke my heart. You knew then that he had been arrested? Yes, sir. I called at his office afterwards, and... Pointing to Coxon. That gentleman told me all about it. Now, do you remember the morning of Friday, July 7th? Yes. Why? My husband nearly strangled me that morning. Nearly strangled you? Ruth. Bowing her head. Yes, my lord. With his hands, or...? Yes. I just managed to get away from him. I went straight to my friend. It was eight o'clock. In the morning. Your husband was not under the influence of liquor, then? It wasn't always that. In what condition were you? In very bad condition, sir. My dress was torn, and I was half-choking. Did you tell your friend what had happened? Yes, I wish I never had. It upset him? Dreadfully. Did he ever speak to you about a cheque? Never. Did he ever give you any money? Yes. When was that? On Saturday. The 8th? To buy an outfit for me and the children, and get all ready to start. Did that surprise you, or not? What, sir? That he had money to give you? Yes, because on the morning when my husband nearly killed me, my friend cried because he hadn't the money to get me away. He told me afterwards he'd come into a windfall. And when did you last see him? The day he was taken away, sir. It was the day we were to have started. Oh, yes, the morning of the arrest. Well, did you see him at all between the Friday and that morning? Ruth nods. What was his manner then? Dumb. Like, sometimes he didn't seem able to say a word. As if something unusual had happened to him? Yes. Painful or pleasant, or what? Like a fate hanging over him. Froome, hesitating. Tell me, did you love the prisoner very much? Ruth, bowing her head. Yes. And had he a very great affection for you? Ruth. Looking at Folder. Yes, sir. Now, ma'am, 
do you or do you not think that your danger and unhappiness would seriously affect his balance his control over his actions yes his reason even for a moment like i think it would was he very much upset that friday morning or was he fairly calm dreadfully upset i could hardly bear to let him go from me do you still love him ruth with her eyes on folder he ruined himself for me thank you he sits down ruth remains stoically upright in the witness-box cleaver in a considerate voice when you left him on the morning of friday the seventh would you not say that he was out of his mind i suppose no sir thank you i have no further questions to ask you ruth bending a little toward the jury i would have done the same for him i would indeed please please you say your married life is an unhappy one faults on both sides only that i never bowed down to him i don't see why i should sir not to a man like that you refused to obey him ruth avoiding the question i've always studied him to keep things nice until you met the prisoner was that it no even after that i ask you now because you seem to me to glory in this affection of yours for the prisoner ruth hesitating i i do it's the only thing in my life now the judge staring at her hard well step down please ruth looks at falder then passes quietly down and takes a seat among the witnesses i call the prisoner my lord falder leaves the dock goes into the witness-box and is duly sworn what is your name william falder and age twenty-three you are not married falder shakes his head how long have you known the last witness six months is her account of the relationship between you a correct one yes you became devotedly attached to her however yes though you knew she was a married woman i couldn't help it your lordship couldn't help it i didn't seem able to the judge slightly shrugs his shoulders how did you come to know her through my married sister did you know whether she was happy with her husband it was trouble all the time you knew her husband only through her he's a brute i can't allow indiscriminate abuse of a person not present Froom, bowing if your lordship pleases to folder you admit altering this check carry your mind please to the morning of friday july the seventh and tell the jury what happened folder turning to the jury i was having my breakfast when she came her dress was all torn she was gasping and couldn't seem to get her breath at all there were the marks of his fingers round her throat her arm was bruised and the blood had gone into her eyes dreadfully it frightened me and then when she told me i felt i felt well it was too much for me hardening suddenly if you'd seen it, having the feelings for her that I had, you'd have felt the same, I know. Yes? When she left me because I had to go to the office, I was out of my senses for fear that he'd do it again. 
and thinking what I could do, I couldn't work. All the morning I was like that. Simply couldn't fix my mind on anything. I couldn't think at all. I seemed to have to keep moving. When Davis, the other clerk, gave me the check, he said, It'll do you good, Will. You have a run with this. You seem half off your trump this morning. And then when I had it in my hand, I didn't know how it came. But it just flashed across me that if I put the T and the knot there, would be the money to get her away. It just came and went. I never thought of it again. And Davies went out to his luncheon. I don't really remember what I did till I pushed the check through to the cashier under the rail. I remember his saying, gold or notes. And then I suppose I knew what I'd done. Anyway, when I got outside, I wanted to chuck myself under a bus. I wanted to throw the money away, but it seemed I was in for it. So I thought at any rate I'd save her. Of course the tickets I took for the passage and the little I gave has been wasted and all. Except what I was obliged to spend myself, I've restored. I keep thinking over and over, however it was I came to do that. And how I can't have it all again to do differently. Folder is silent, twisting his hands before him. How far is it from your office to the bank? No more than fifty yards, sir. From the time Davis went out to lunch to the time you cashed the cheque, how long do you say it must have been? Couldn't have been four minutes, sir, because I ran all the way. During those four minutes, you say you remember nothing? No, sir, only that I ran. Not even adding the T and the knot? No, sir, I really don't. Froome sits down and Cleaver rises. But you remember running, do you? I was all out of breath when I got to the bank. And you don't remember altering the check? Falter, faintly. No, sir. Divested of the romantic glamour which my friend is casting over the case, is this anything but an ordinary forgery? Come. I was half frantic all that morning, sir. Now, now. You don't deny that the tie and the knot were so like the rest of the handwriting as to thoroughly deceive the cashier? It was an accident. Cleaver, cheerfully. A queer sort of accident, wasn't it? On which day did you alter the counterfoil? Folder, hanging his head. On the Wednesday morning. Was that an accident, too? Folder, faintly. No. To do that, you had to watch your opportunity, I suppose. Folder, almost inaudibly. Yes. You don't suggest that you were suffering under great excitement when you did that? I was haunted. With fear of being found out? Folder, very low. Yes. Didn't it occur to you that the only thing for you to do was to confess to your employers and restore the money? I was afraid. There is silence. You desired too, no doubt, to complete your design of taking this woman away. When I found I'd done a thing like that, to do it for nothing seemed so dreadful. I might just as well have chucked myself into the river. You knew that the clerk Davis was about to leave England. Didn't it occur to you, when you altered this check, that suspicion would fall on him? It was all done in the moment. I thought of it afterwards. And that didn't lead you to avow what you'd done? Folder, suddenly. I meant to write it when I got out there. I would have repaid the money. But in the meantime, your innocent fellow clerk might have been prosecuted. I knew he was a long way off, your lordship. I thought there'd be time. 
I didn't think they'd find it out so soon. I might remind your lordship that as Mr. Walter Howe had the checkbook in his pocket till after Davis had sailed, if the discovery had been made only one day later, Falder himself would have left, and suspicion would have attached to him and not to Davis from the beginning. The question is whether the prisoner knew that suspicion would light on himself and not on Davis. To Falder, sharply. Did you know that Mr. Walter Howe had the checkbook till after Davis had sailed? I... I thought... he... Now speak the truth. Yes or no. Falder, very low. No, my lord. I have no means of knowing. That disposes of your point, Mr. Froome. Froome bows to the judge. Has any aberration of this nature ever attacked you before? Falder, faintly. No, sir. You had recovered sufficiently to go back to your work that afternoon? Yes, I had to take the money back. You mean the nine pounds? Your wits were sufficiently keen for you to remember that, and you still persist in saying you don't remember altering this check. He sits down. If I hadn't been mad, I should never have had the courage. Froome, rising. Did you have your lunch before going back? Never ate a thing all day, and at night I couldn't sleep. Now, as to the four minutes that elapsed between Davis going out and your cashing the cheque, do you say that you recollect nothing during those four minutes? Folder, after a moment. I remember thinking of Mr. Coxon's face. Of Mr. Coxon's face? Had that any connection with what you were doing? No, sir. Was that in the office, before you ran out? Yes, and while I was running. And that lasted till the cashier said, Will you have gold or notes? Yes, and then I seemed to come to myself, and it was too late. Thank you. That closes the evidence for the defence, my lord. The judge nods, and Folder goes back to his seat in the dock. Froome, gathering up notes. If it please, your lordship, gentlemen of the jury... My friend in cross-examination has shown a disposition to sneer at the defence which has been set up in this case, and I am free to admit that nothing I can say will move you, if the evidence has not already convinced you that the prisoner committed this act in a moment, when to all practical intents and purposes he was not responsible for his actions. A moment of such mental and moral vacuity, arising from the violent emotional agitation under which he had been suffering— as to amount to temporary madness. My friend has alluded to the romantic glamour with which I have sought to invest this case. Gentlemen, I have done nothing of the kind. I have merely shown you the background of life, that palpitating life which, believe me, whatever my friend may say, always lies behind the commission of a crime. Now, gentlemen, we live in a highly civilized age, and the sight of brutal violence disturbs us in a very strange way, even when we have no personal interest in the matter. But when we see it inflicted on a woman whom we love, what then? Just think of what your own feelings would have been, each of you, at the prisoner's age, and then look at him. Well, he is hardly the comfortable, shall we say, 
bucolic person likely to contemplate with equanimity marks of gross violence on a woman to whom he was devotedly attached yes gentlemen look at him he has not a strong face but neither has he a vicious face he is just the sort of man who would easily become the prey of his emotions you have heard the description of his eyes my friend may laugh at the word funny i think it better describes the peculiar uncanny look of those who are strained to breaking point than any other word which could have been used i don't pretend mind you that his mental irresponsibility was more than a flash of darkness in which all sense of proportion became lost but to contend that just as a man who destroys himself at such a moment may be and often is absolved from the stigma attaching to the crime of self-murder so he may and frequently does commit other crimes while in this irresponsible condition and that he may as justly be acquitted of criminal intent and treated as a patient i admit that this is a plea which might well be abused it is a matter for discretion but here you have a case in which there is every reason to give the benefit of the doubt you heard me ask the prisoner what he thought of during those four fatal minutes what was his answer i thought of mr kirkson's face gentlemen no man could invent an answer like that it is absolutely stamped with truth you have seen the great affection legitimate or not existing between him and this woman who came here to give evidence for him at the risk of her life it is impossible for you to doubt his distress on the morning when he committed this act we well know what terrible havoc such distress can make in weak and highly nervous people it was all the work of a moment the rest has followed as death follows a stab to the heart or water drops if you hold up a jug to empty it believe me gentlemen there is nothing more tragic in life than the utter impossibility of changing what you have done once this cheque was altered and presented the work of four minutes four mad minutes the rest has been silence but in those four minutes the boy before you had slipped through a door hardly opened into that great cage which never again quite lets a man go the cage of the law his further acts his failure to confess the alteration of the counterfoil his preparations for flight are all evidence not of deliberate and guilty intention when he committed the prime act from which the subsequent acts arose no they are merely evidence of the weak character which is clearly enough his misfortune but is a man to be lost because he is bred and born with a weak character gentlemen men like the prisoner are destroyed daily under our law for want of that human insight which sees them as they are patients and not criminals if the prisoner be found guilty and treated as though he were a criminal type he will as all experience shows in all probability become one i beg you not to return a verdict that may thrust him back into prison and brand him forever gentlemen justice is a machine that when someone has once given it the starting push rolls on of itself 
is this young man to be ground to pieces under this machine for an act which at the worst was one of weakness is he to become a member of the luckless crews that man those dark ill-starred ships called prisons is that to be his voyage from which so few return or is he to have another chance to be still looked on as one who has gone a little astray but who will come back i urge you gentlemen do not ruin this young man for as a result of those four minutes ruin utter and irretrievable stares him in the face he can be saved now imprison him as a criminal and i affirm to you that he will be lost he has neither the face nor the manner of one who can survive that terrible ordeal weigh in the scales his criminality and the suffering he has undergone the latter is ten times heavy already he has lain in prison under this charge for more than two months is he likely ever to forget that imagine the anguish of his mind during that time he has had his punishment gentlemen you may depend the rolling of the chariot wheels of justice over this boy began when it was decided to prosecute him we are now already at the second stage if you permitted to go on to the third i would not give that for him he holds up finger and thumb in the form of a circle drops his hand and sits down may it please your lordship rising on his toes gentlemen of the jury the facts in this case are not disputed and the defence if my friend will allow me to say so is so thin that i don't propose to waste the time of the court by taking you over the evidence the plea is one of temporary insanity well gentlemen i dare say it is clear to me than it is to you why this rather what shall we call it bizarre defence has been set up the alternative would have been to plead guilty now gentlemen if the prisoner had pleaded guilty my friend would have had to rely on a simple appeal to his lordship instead of that he has gone into the byways and the hedges and found this er uh, peculiar plea which has enabled him to show you the proverbial woman to put her in the box to give in fact a romantic glow to this affair i compliment my friend i think it highly ingenious of him by these means he has to a certain extent got round the law he has brought the whole story of motive and stress out in court at first hand in a way that he would not otherwise have been able to do but when you have once grasped that fact gentlemen you have grasped everything with good-humoured contempt for look at this plea of insanity we can't put it lower than that you have heard the woman she has every reason to favour the prisoner but what did she say she said that the prisoner was not insane when she left him in the morning if he were going out of his mind through distress that was obviously the moment when insanity would have shown itself you have heard the managing clerk another witness for the defence with some difficulty i elicited from him the admission that the prisoner though jumpy a word that he seemed to think you would understand gentlemen 
and i'm sure i hope you do was not mad when the check was handed to davis i agree with my friend that it is unfortunate that we have not got davis here but the prisoner has told you the words with which davis in turn handed him the check he obviously therefore was not mad when he received it or he would not have remembered those words the cashier has told you that he was certainly in his senses when he cashed it we have therefore the plea that a man who is sane at ten minutes past one and sane at fifteen minutes past may for the purposes of avoiding the consequences of a crime call himself insane between those points of time really gentlemen this is so peculiar a proposition that i am not disposed to weary you with further argument you will form your own opinion of its value my friend has adopted this way of saying a great deal to you and very eloquently on the score of youth temptation and the like i might point out however that the offence with which the prisoner is charged is one of the most serious known to our law and there are certain features in this case such as the suspicion which he allowed to rest on his innocent fellow-clerk and his relations with this married woman which will render it difficult for you to attach too much importance to such pleading i ask you in short gentlemen for that verdict of guilty which in the circumstances i regard you as unfortunately bound to record letting his eyes travel from the judge and the jury to froom he sits down the judge bending a little towards the jury and speaking in a business-like voice gentlemen you have heard the evidence and the comments on it my only business is to make clear to you the issues you have to try the facts are admitted so far as the alteration of this check and counterfoil by the prisoner the defence set up is that he was not in a responsible condition when he committed the crime well you have heard the prisoner's story and the evidence of the other witnesses so far as it bears on the point of insanity if you think that what you have heard establishes the fact that the prisoner was insane at the time of the forgery you will find him guilty but insane if on the other hand you conclude from what you have seen and heard that the prisoner was sane and nothing short of insanity will count you will find him guilty in reviewing the testimony as to his mental condition you must bear in mind very carefully the evidence as to his demeanour and conduct both before and after the act of forgery the evidence of the prisoner himself of the woman of the witness uh, coaxum and um, of the cashier in regard to that i especially direct your attention to the prisoner's admission that the idea of adding the t y and the naught did come into his mind at the moment when the cheque was handed to him and also to the alteration of the counterfoil and to his subsequent conduct generally 
the bearing of all this on the question of premeditation and premeditation will imply sanity is very obvious you must not allow any considerations of age or temperament to weigh with you in the findings of your verdict before you can come to a verdict of guilty but insane you must be well and thoroughly convinced that the condition of his mind was such as would have qualified him at the moment for a lunatic asylum he pauses then seeing that the jury are doubtful whether to retire or no adds you may retire gentlemen if you wish to do so the jury retire by a door behind the judge the judge bends over his notes folder leaning from the dock speaks excitedly to his solicitor pointing down at ruth the solicitor in turn speaks to froome froome rising my lord the prisoner is very anxious that i should ask you if your lordship would kindly request the reporters not to disclose the name of the woman witness in the press reports of these proceedings your lordship will understand that the consequences might be extremely serious to her the judge pointedly with the suspicion of a smile well mr froome you deliberately took this course which involved bringing her here froome with an ironic bow if your lordship thinks i could have brought out the full facts in any other way mm, well there is very real danger to her your lordship you see i have to take your word for that if your lordship would be so kind i can assure your lordship that i am not exaggerating it goes very much against the grain with me that the name of a witness should ever be suppressed with a glance at folder who is gripping and clasping his hands before him then at ruth who is sitting perfectly rigid with her eyes fixed on folder i'll consider your application it must depend i have to remember that she may have come here to commit perjury on the prisoner's behalf your lordship i really yes yes i don't suggest anything of the sort mr froome leave it at that for the moment as he finishes speaking the jury return and file back into the box gentlemen are you agreed on your verdict we are is it guilty or guilty but insane guilty the judge nods then gathering up his notes sits looking at folder who stands motionless froome rising if your lordship would allow me to address you in mitigation of sentence i don't know if your lordship thinks i can add anything to what i have said to the jury on the score of the prisoner's youth and the great stress under which she acted i don't think you can mr froome if your lordship says so i do most earnestly beg your lordship to give the utmost weight to my plea he sits down the judge to the clerk call upon him folder shakes his head william folder you have been given fair trial and found guilty in my opinion rightly found guilty of forgery he pauses then 
consulting his notes, goes on. The defence was set up that you were not responsible for your actions at the moment of committing this crime. There is no doubt, I think, that this was a device to bring out at first hand the nature of the temptation to which you succumbed. For throughout the trial, your counsel was in reality making an appeal for mercy. The setting up of this defence, of course, enabled him to put in some evidence that might weigh in that direction. Whether he was well advised to do so is another matter. He claimed that you should be treated rather as a patient than as a criminal and this plea of his which in the end amounted to a passionate appeal he based in effect on an indictment of the march of justice which he practically accused of confirming and completing the process of criminality now in considering how far i should allow weight to his appeal I have a number of factors to take into account. I have to consider on the one hand the grave nature of your offence, the deliberate way in which you subsequently altered the counterfoil, the danger you caused to an innocent man, and that, to my mind, is a very grave point and finally i have to consider the necessity of deterring others from following your example on the other hand i have to bear in mind that you are young that you have hitherto borne a good character that you were if i am to believe your evidence and that of your witnesses in a state of some emotional excitement when you committed the crime i have every wish consistently with my duty not only to you but to the community to treat you with leniency and this brings me to what are the determining factors in my mind in consideration of your case you are a clerk in a lawyer's office that is a very serious element in this case there can be no possible excuse made for you on the ground that you were not fully conversant with the nature of the crime you were committing and the penalties that attach to it it is said however that you were carried away by your emotions the story has been told here today of your relations with this uh, mrs honeywill on that story both the defence and the plea for mercy were in effect based now what is that story it is that you a young man and she a young woman unhappily married had formed an attachment which you both say with what truth i am unable to gauge had not yet resulted in immoral relations but which you both admit was about to result in such relationship. Your counsel has made an attempt to palliate this on the ground that the woman is in what he describes, I think, as a hopeless position. As to that, I can express no opinion. 
she is a married woman and the fact is patent that you committed this crime with the view of furthering an immoral design now however i might wish i am not able to justify to my conscience a plea for mercy which has a basis inimical to morality it is vitiated ab initio and would if successful free you for the completion of this immoral project your counsel has made an attempt to trace your offence back to what he seems to suggest is a defect in the marriage law he has made an attempt also to show that to punish you with further imprisonment would be unjust i do not follow him in these flights the law is what it is a majestic edifice sheltering all of us each stone of which rests on another i am concerned only with its administration the crime you have committed is a very serious one i cannot feel it in accordance with my duty to society to exercise the powers i have in your favour you will go to penal servitude for three years Falter who throughout the judge's speech looked at him steadily lets his head fall forward on his breast ruth starts up from her seat as he is taken out by the warders there is a bustle in court the judge speaking to the reporters gentlemen of the press i think that the name of the female witness should not be reported the reporters bow their acquiescence the judge to ruth who is staring in the direction in which folder has disappeared pulling her sleeve the judge is speaking to you ruth turns stares at the judge and turns away i shall sit rather late today call the next case clerk of assize to a warder put up john booley to cries of witnesses in the case of booley the curtain falls end of act two